good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are joining us from. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is the second in a series of policy seminars on rising food and fertilizer prices following the invasion of Ukraine. The first one was held on the 9th of March and it focused on global agricultural commodity prices. Today, we look at how those global prices get transmitted to the national level and impact retail prices. We are very eager to hear from you throughout this seminar. Please submit your questions or comments on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. It's now my great pleasure to turn the floor over to Jo Swinnen, who is the Global Director of Systems Transformation within CGIR, and also the Director General of IFPRI. Thanks for being with us uh, today, Jo. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, thanks very much, Charlotte. It's a uh, great pleasure to be here, although the topic itself is not uh, exactly something to be uh, pleased about. Um, I don't think the topic needs much of an introduction in the sense that everybody knows this is a really important issue which is affecting so many people around the world today. Uh, I think we have a fantastic panel uh, here today. I'm, I'm extremely pleased that His Excellency Minister of State Ngabe Sinze is with us today, uh, Minister of, of Rwanda. Then my colleague Ali Abu Saba is also here. Ali is the DG of ICARDA and currently also the He's also having two heads in the CDR system, just like me, uh, the regional director for uh, Central and West Af uh, Central and West Asia and, and North Africa. And we, of course, we have our colleague Galbore from, from the World Bank and several of our colleagues from IFPRI today, Rob, Valeria, Bart, uh, and Sikandra, who are all, uh, will make, I think, very uh, interesting and important contributions. Let me give a, a, a brief introduction of the issue as well. I have put together a few slides on that. Um, this is, uh, next slide, please. Um, so the um, so this uh, figure, I think most, many of you who are with us today have seen this already, right? And so what I think what's important here is that, you know, in 2007, 2008, we saw this food price spike as an exception to a fairly stable norm. I think if we look back now, so this is the last 20, uh, 22 years, now we see that spikes are actually the norm and stability is the exception. So we are living in this world, which is very different from the period, I think, between uh, before 2005. You also see the correlation between the food, the fuel, and the fertilizer prices, which is uh, rather common again uh, across this period. And, and so the high price spikes, where today we are at the same level or even beyond the, the spikes in 2007, 2008. There are a number of reasons why the, um, the, 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 the spike of problem or the, the, the cause of the high food price may be worse or, or a bigger challenge today than it was in the previous one. And that's uh, a number of reasons. One is that, of course, COVID-19 had a big impact on, on, on the poor people in the world. And so many are still recovering both, I think, economically and socially from this impact. And so this comes on top of that. We know that since 2015, structurally, hunger and malnutrition are on the rise again. We also know on the government perspective that while during COVID-19 there's been an expansion of social programs, but also there's been a, a, an expansion of public expenditures, okay, and so again this comes on, on top of that. And it is, of course, in, unclear at this point how long the current challenges uh, will persist. Next slide, please. So the next slide. Um, 
kind of summarizes briefly that before the wars uh, which started in, in, in Ukraine, that the uh, prices were already high and stocks were actually low, uh, lower than in 2008, except for rice. So in terms of uh, the, the stocks of corn, soybeans and wheat, you can see that on the right hand panel, there you see the lines are going down. So these are the blue lines and the green lines over the past couple of years. And only the red line, which is the, the line of rice, is, is going up. And so that's certainly an, an, a factor of concern. The evolution of the prices is it's in more detail there, what was already in the previous price uh, slide, but you know that prices have gone up prior to the war. Next slide. So the war has exacerbated all these uh, things. And it, uh, we know that in terms of calorie supply to the world, uh, Russia and Ukraine both uh, produce or, or supply roughly 6% of calories in the world. So that's a lot. But of course, it's concentrated in a few commodities and it's more concentrated the impact in terms of who depends on, on, on that supply uh, in a number of countries. And so if you look on the left-hand panel has uh, information on the commodities and there you see particular in, in wheat, barley, uh, sunflower and sunflower oil, the role of Russia and Ukraine together are really important. On the right-hand panel, this is the map of the world, and there you very clearly see it's the countries around Russia and Ukraine which are clearly more dependent on, on their supply. And, and so the area where, uh, uh, where Ali is working on or is responsible for uh, supervising is clearly very heavily affected by this, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to his presentation on this. Next slide, please. On the, um, it's not just the food, okay, it's also the, the food production system itself, which is, uh, which will be very strongly affected both by the war itself, by the disruption of the supply channels there, the infrastructure, uh, the export constraints, uh, but also, and so this is also translated in, for example, the increased price in fertilizers and fuels, also these prices were on the rise, and clearly, um, it's not just Russia, it's also Belarus, which is facing sanctions, where, where the fertilizer exports are really significantly affected and these are really important supply uh, channels for the world. And again, it is geographically concentrated in a number of countries and you see that several African countries are really very heavily dependent on, on, on this. Next slide. Uh, we, I think throughout, I'm not going to go into details here, I mean the key point is there are uh, policies that need to be looked at, taken care of, uh, redesigned, but also uh, sometimes not being introduced in terms of, think about trade restrictions, etc. So both at the, at the regional level, at the global level, and at the country level. And I think today we'll hear a number of, of discussions on these things, I'm, I'm not going to go into that, but I, it's obviously extremely important. And then my last slide is about our own work, okay, how it's affected. I think there you know that, or you may not know that IFPRI has been extremely active on this already for a month now. We have a series of blogs, a series of events. And I think it's, it's very important that we have the capacity to do this. And in order to have this capacity, we need to invest in this. And so this is an, an, uh, a factor which is really important right now when we are thinking about the restructuring of IFPRI and, and the CGIR system in terms of investments. So I focus here on the on the policy side of things, if you want, and I know Ali will talk about some of the other investments that are needed, uh, more in terms of technology and, and management structure uh, that are also un undergoing in his organization and in the CGR as a whole. So with that, Charlotte, back to you. Thank you very much, Yo, for that overview. We are now going to turn it over to Ali Abu Sabah, 
who wears uh, two hats as the regional director of the Central and West Asia and North Africa for the CGIAR. And he's also the director general for the International Center for Agricultural Research in the dry areas. Ali, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this uh, kind introduction. Glad to be with all of you here today to discuss this, uh, uh, the topic of the hour. So, uh, you know, you uh, offered us an excellent overview in, you know, looking at the drivers of the problem and how the food prices are affecting, uh, you know, the whole world. And what I'm going to try and do is possibly to try and take a, a bit more focus on uh, the Middle East and North Africa, maybe the whole of the Siwana region and how this is affecting, uh, you know, the, the individual countries and possibly from there go and share some of the innovations within the CG that could help countries adjust and adapt to this. And of course, the greatest challenge is that we do not know how long this crisis will, will prevail. So if you can move, next slide, please. So I think, you know, what is most critical with this rising food prices is that this comes at a time when the region is already facing very, very serious challenges. The whole question of conflict, malnutrition, uh, high population, increased land degradation, climate, water scarcity and climate change. And of course, these are uh, basically uh, constitute together what we like to characterize as a perfect storm. So when you have rising food prices, this automatically uh, triggers a very, very unfavorable response from the people and rightfully so. And of course, this also puts the, the whole question of rising food prices at the center of what the, the governments are trying to manage in the region. Next slide, please. We have, we have seen a very different and, and also very diverse way of response from the countries. We have seen countries looking forward to purchase more wheat and more you know, food from other sources, like in Lebanon. But the challenge there is that there is insufficient storage capacity, especially after the unfortunate events that happened. So even though you may be able to source the wheat, you have serious challenges about finding the right infrastructure in place. Uh, there are also uh, you know, many uh, uh, countries that are struggling with severe drought, like in the case of Morocco, uh, you know, good rains, uh, like in, in certain other parts and possibly even a bumper uh, crop this year. But what we are seeing to be really common among all the countries in the region is that they're looking for a more sustainable way of responding to the crisis, and that has been through the diversification. Uh, first of all, being able to uh, generate more food, it may not necessarily be wheat in the forum, so looking at replacements and different sources uh, for human food, but also something to feed uh, the animals. So uh, uh, we, within this context, uh, you know, the 1CG has been looking at how to support these countries uh, where uh, the desert it dominates a large part of, of, of these countries. So we came up with the concept of an integrated desert farming that looks at uh, you know, the existing CGIR innovations, uh, bringing the land together with the water, together with uh, you know, uh, alternative sources of protein like fish, bringing the small ruminants, and how you would look at this uh, as a collective package of innovations that can produce more food for the people, but also alternative ways for looking and generating more feed for the animals so that you're able to compete less with the traditional sources of food. But at the same time, you're able to maintain uh, and add value along uh, the value chain. 
So uh, what this integrated desert farming seeks to do is to look at what are the available natural resources that can be exploited uh, to be able to generate more food. So we've looked more broadly at the region. The region has abundance of uh, you know, solar energy. So that allows the uh, use of clean energy to pump water out and possibly through investments in modern irrigation systems, you're able to deal with the issue of water scarcity and be able to actually save significant amounts of water to grow uh, crops. We've been looking at alternative sources of animal feed, such as cactus, that is really loved by the animal, the small rumens that are typical to this part of the world, feeding the camels with this kind of thing could potentially save up to 40% of uh, you know, the straw and, and alternative feed sources such as barley, which you can now start to divert to make bread as, as a substitute or as a, a key ingredient, mixing it with wheat flour so that you're able to produce what people like to eat in this region, which is bread. We've been able to look at uh, you know, the uh, more adapted uh, species of small ruminants, those that are naturally adapted to the heat uh, that it consumes uh, traditionally almost half the water uh, that the traditional livestock would consume and making this to be part of the system. We've been looking at non-traditional uh, you know, uh, crops for the CG, but that are quite prominent in the region, such as date palm, looking, looking more broadly and other types of trees, such as uh, fig trees, olive trees, and how you could bring in an entire system that would maximize uh, the alternative uh, sources of revenue and improvement of livelihood of the smallholders but also allowing them opportunities to create value from a different value chain. So under extreme uh, you know, conditions, they are able to sustain themselves and bring, take something uh, to the markets that generate income and make the overall livelihood uh, uh, much better. So it's not a simple question. I think this is uh, one area that needs to be developed further and requires a lot of exchange of knowledge across the globe. And I think this is one area where the one CGIR is quite uh, you know, good in, in doing. If we can move to the next slide, please. Oh, so this um, uh, slide shows actually the model through which this integrated concept uh, could work with uh, the research partners at the center of all of this. And you can see how neatly the different research capacities from across the CGIR come in. But then the very important role that the small and medium enterprises and startups and companies will have to play in order to be able to provide the ingredients for this. And we've heard from you know, the whole question about the rising prices of uh, inputs as well, of course, uh, the fertilizer. It also has a very clear role for uh, the farmers being at the center of this, all the donors, the NGOs, and many of the key partners. All of this needs to come together to be able to work with the NARS and the key uh, you know, uh, advanced partner institutions so that collectively you're able to consolidate the knowledge, bring in the best practices from across the globe and take it to farmer fields, and then make sure that it is producing the expected results at country level. So uh, if this uh, you know, uh, works in the way it is being designed and we'll definitely make sure that it succeeds, uh, it has the potential to uh, actually make a significant large uh, amount of uh, people to have improved livelihoods, uh, you know, it will uh, uh, put into good use the bundles of innovations uh, that has been developed over the past 50 years 
and it will help leverage a significant amount of technologies uh, through uh, opportunities for public and private uh, producers to come together, leveraging the artificial intelligence, the remote sensing, all in a manner that needs to be accelerated so that we are able to move uh, to the next uh, level of uh, uh, improved livelihoods. Next slide, please. So uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, there is a significant crisis, but I think that it also offers enormous amount of opportunities. If we're able to think in a very different way and not see and be only focused on the crisis, I think there are sufficient knowledge and innovations out there that could help countries diversify their production system, that could help countries uh, understand what are the variety of policy options that they need to be able to put in place, leverage in a very different way the social safety nets that have prevailed for many years, for them to be able to leverage this to have a more, probably a better future. It's going to definitely have a crunch on the short term, but on the medium, on the long term, there are definitely a number of policy options and technological innovations that can be leveraged to turn this situation in a different direction. So let me stop here and thank you for the opportunity to share some of my thoughts. Thank you very much, Ali, for reviewing the integrated desert farming approach that you've outlined. And it's terrific to see how the CGIR is working with the countries in the region to implement this. I also appreciated you're talking about finding alternative feeds, uh, feed for animals so that there is not greater competition um, for, the, for the, the crops that humans tend to consume. And IFPRI has been raising a similar point about biofuels that we should not be diverting uh, food crops to, to the production of um, biofuels at this point in time. So thank you very much, Ali. We really appreciate your, your remarks. I'm now going to turn to Rob Voss, who is the division director of the Markets, Trade and Institutions Division at IFPRI, which has done really great work in tracking uh, the, the food price movements uh, already for the past year, but certainly now with more um, uh, attention after the Ukraine crisis. So Rob, you're gonna to talk to us today to, to really talk about this very important topic, a research topic. How do we understand how, to what extent global agricultural commodity prices get transmitted to the national level? Because of course it will depend on, on, on country to country. So very interesting presentation and thank you very much for, for giving that today. Um, thank you, Charlotte. and. Um... Yes, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about uh, these, the impact of the global, uh, 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 yeah, the ramification of the global uh, markets volatility onto domestic food price uh, inflation. But before getting into that, the first point I would like to raise is, is uh, following up from what Ali was saying, we have to put this in broader perspective. If we think of uh, imminent food crisis, um, we of course think of Ukraine, but we should also think of the situation in the Horn of Africa where an imminent famine is, uh, is there because of uh, prolonged and repeated uh, droughts. Um, and that's not directly related to uh, the ramifications of the uh, invasion of Ukraine and its impacts on global markets. So it's good to, to put that into perspective. Uh, the second point I'd like to make, it's important to understand well um, how the, um, international consequences um, having are having an impact on uh, domestic situations and uh, 
the director, the managing director of the IMF said a few weeks ago that the war in Ukraine means hunger in Africa. Now, while that may be true, uh, it's not a direct relationship. We need to understand well how that works and um, uh, through that also understand what would be the right policy responses. So if we go to the next slide, uh, please. Um, so first, is, uh, it's good to see that food prices in international markets, but also to consumers uh, in around the world were already up last year. So this is a, a map, a heat map of uh, consumer food price, consumer inflation um, as of uh, February 22nd of this year. So uh, just before the um, uh, invasion in Ukraine. So already before that, we saw this map coloring red. And, um, and that was because also in international markets, as Joe's presentation showed, prices had already increased uh, um, uh, during last year, particularly because of the two-track um, recovery from um, uh, the pandemic, the crisis caused by the pandemic, um, and so particularly in developing countries uh, uh, not being able to um, uh, produce enough food to meet uh, increasing demand uh, with uh, the recovery. But it also has to do with other factors that have to do with exchange rates, fiscal space, uh, and for food subsidies, uh, for which uh, a lot of the developing countries have less capacity to respond to. When we go to the next slide, it's, um, it's very clear here from if you take it a year ago, uh, then um, the map on the left um, was is much lighter colored than on the right, which means uh, much higher uh, fluid inf inflation rates. Um, but also um, at the beginning of last year, inflation rates were already uh, up in, in several parts of the world, uh, in part because of this uh, two-track recovery I just uh, mentioned. So what we need to do is to dig uh, a little bit deeper into um, the specific um, causes and transmission mechanisms uh, of the what's happening in global markets. So we go to the next slide, please. So here's a, a framework to think about that. So on the left-hand side, we, we have, we see shocks in the markets that directly related to the conflict because of um, the importance of uh, particularly Russia and Ukraine uh, for the production and uh, exports of uh, core commodities. Um, and so those effects could be exacerbated because of, we also seeing because of uh, high oil prices and uh, supply restrictions in fertilizer markets, increased cost of inputs. And um, we're seeing already uh, trade restrictions, be it in the form of sanctions, or be it in the form um, of actual restrictions uh, uh, posed by countries uh, that could further exacerbate uh, food price shocks. And um, I'll emphasize a bit uh, these trade restrictions that are very important to consider, not just because of export bans that um, uh, producing countries and food exporting countries uh, may impose and that will uh, insulate their uh, their own populations from increased prices, but uh, will be bad for everybody else. On the other hand, so what we've seen from the, and we know from the uh, crisis in 2008, 2009, and 2010, 2011, that many food importing countries then respond by uh, lowering uh, import tariffs on the food items uh, to uh, insulate their consumers, but that will drive up demand for uh, food imports uh, around the world if that happens on a, on a large scale. 
and that then will, will further drive up food prices and exacerbating the shock we have. So you need to understand this dynamics well uh, before we uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, to derive con uh, consequences for what it means for the impacts at the country level. Then, of course, the vulnerabilities of countries will depend on how much they depend on imports of key staple foods, um, exchange rate, whether they have uh, enough strengths, macroeconomic strengths to uh, protect uh, from further devaluations, particularly in food importing countries that could drive up the cost, the fiscal and other financial constraints that will determine to what extent uh, countries are able to uh, insulate their populations from the food price shocks, uh, as well as, of course, the food uh, production capacity inside the country and resilience to shocks like these, but uh, also other shocks like weather shocks, as I mentioned in the beginning. So those uh, elements may conspire against um, uh, uh, food security because of uh, high vulnerability. And of course, um, as we'll see later on, uh, impacts at the household level particularly uh, tend to impact har hardest on the poor because they spend a lot more higher shares of, uh, of their incomes uh, on food items and hence the food impacts will be bigger. But we have to weigh all these factors in order to understand how the um, global um, uh, trends uh, impact on uh, domestic uh, price uh, price increases. So here's uh, some recent work that we have been doing um, together with uh, my colleague David Laborde, and so which um, provides you with a, a, a quick overview of the degrees and the different types of vulnerabilities that countries are exposed to. I'll just won't go to over the, all the details here. Uh, but the, the first major conclusion is that we have to be very careful in differentiating um, the impacts on different countries. But what it shows here is that uh, beyond the various types of uh, exposures to either the conflict um, because of uh, uh, likely a lower um, exports uh, from Ukraine, Russia to um, certain food importing countries like, like Egypt or direct exposure to export restrictions and or that combined with uh, low uh, domestic stocks of grains um, are the ones that uh, are immediately directly affected. I'd like to point that uh, all the um, orange colored uh, countries on this map, which are basically the countries that are uh, not that so much directly exposed to the impacts of the uh, conflict in the Baltic Sea area, but rather because of the general uh, food price increases and because uh, of high share food costs in consumption and in GDP and in import shares that uh, are affecting uh, these countries. And as you can see, these are a, a, large, a large number, uh, probably the majority of the low and middle income countries. And here you can see how that may impact these different uh, degrees of uh, vulnerability. And here's the, one of the, the couple of the most affected countries. Let me just focus here on one of them, uh, the kind of vulnerabilities we see uh, a country like Yemen, which imports about 82% of their calories of which 22% uh, uh, from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the total uh, calorie consumption at risk, be it because of the trade ties or because of the exposure to export restriction directly, indirectly is 44%. And uh, the increase of just of the cost of wheat will increase the import bill of this country by almost 4% of GDP, which is an enormous uh, impact for just the, a price shock 
uh, for one single commodity. And that will come on top of really high domestic inflation. And what you cannot uh, see well here, uh, because it's cut off here, but the future insecurity in Yemen, of course, are already very high, uh, um, um, affecting about half of the population. We'll hear more about the Yemen situation uh, later on. So here's what I said. So it's very clear the transmission effect and the impact on food security will also depend on uh, on income levels and existing food insecurity situation. But this is just to underline the point already raised: is that uh, lower income countries as well as uh, lower um, income households are much more vulnerable because simply because they spend uh, much more of their income on food. Go to the next slide. Here's one of the lessons learned from uh, the past um, uh, food price crisis. Uh, I'll just highlight two um, elements uh, here. Uh, one is that uh, at that time, the estimate was that the impact of the 2010-11 crisis uh, accounting for all the shocks plus the insulation measures that countries did, which is, uh, you can see from the left-hand side, uh, that the uh, world market price impacts um, did not fully translate maybe just uh, for half of it into uh, domestic price inflation. But ending up um, into uh, an increase across the world, but mostly affecting Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia of about an increase in food number of food insecure people of about 8 million people is about 1%. Uh, so that's significant enough, uh, but it's, uh, it's also not um, as, um, uh, as major as some uh, news reports would like it uh, to uh, to see. Um, and also in this, uh, that the adverse effect of certain insulation mechanisms, particularly the trade mechanisms account for about 40% of the increase in food insecurity. Hence, uh, the conclusion here is trade policy as an insulation measure is not a good uh, device. On to the next slide, please. So there's some uh, recent estimates as well by FVO. We're still looking at it ourselves, but uh, largely we see uh, a range of, in terms of moderates and severe impact scenarios of uh, possible uh, increased uh, from what we know now of the crisis, increased in the number of undernourished people around the world of uh, between eight and 13 million people, just by looking at the impacts on wheat and maize uh, prices, which is uh, fairly similar. Uh, to the impacts that we saw with the 2010-2011 crisis. But maybe more importantly is that the main impact um, is uh, uh, indirectly on what I called before the category six countries, the orange colored countries in the vulnerability map, uh, meaning that the story is not just about wheat and about the Ukraine, but the uh, indirect uh, effects it has on global markets and mediated through the other um, vulnerability factors uh, onto food insecurity around the world. Well, to my next and last slides, and we'll conclude uh, with that. So what does it mean for thinking about policy implication in the short run? Very clearly, we should uh, avoid using uh, trade policies to insulate um, the impacts uh, of this crisis uh, on for consumers, be it through export restrictions or through um, uh, reducing uh, tariffs on foods. Um, uh, and likely we should uh, ideally also avoid sanctions uh, hitting food and fertilizers. If politically that would seem uh, difficult to do, then at least we should have um, uh, compensating measures, particularly 
by facilitating access of food importers to alternative suppliers. Uh, that's uh, also not a given. Um, and also uh, uh, allow facility usage of the uh, still pretty ample available food reserves uh, for uh, exports to um, the most vulnerable uh, countries. So that will require quite a bit of international uh, coordination. Then to insulate the, the poor, it's very important that we uh, uh, countries, particularly with high, um, have to foot very high import bills, uh, get balance of payment support and fiscal support in order to um, avoid having to recur to trade um, restrictions and trade measures to insulate population with water, do it through, um, uh, through social protection measures uh, and support for international food aid for those countries that are in dire need of uh, more uh, direct food assistance. Um, and then lastly, and that brings me back to my initial point, we have to look beyond the, uh, the current crisis. We have uh, more and better monitoring mechanisms in place, uh, not just to be prepared to give the right answers uh, and tailored answers to the uh, present crisis, but also the future crisis and other crises as like what's happening now in the Horn of Africa to be prepared. Um, and we can only do that if we do that on a systematic basis. And that's what we're trying to work on and put in place uh, at CGIR and uh, at IFPRI. So thank you very much and apologies for taking more of uh, my a lot of time. Thank you very much, Rob, for walking us through the different factors that, that determine a country's vulnerability to, to the high global prices. And we'll hear a lot of that later in the presentations on particular countries. And also thank you to you as well as Ali and, and Yo, all of you have stressed that yes, this is a particular crisis, of course, but there are, you know, we're, we're, we've already seen other crises and crises are likely to continue and perhaps even uh, become more frequent with, with climate change. So we need to be sure that we are monitoring uh, the situation very closely all the time. I think that's a really important takeaway from, from your presentation. We're now moving to a, a country um, and it's a very special country of Rwanda and we're very honored to have with us uh, the Honorable Minister of State in the Ministry of Agriculture and Animal Resources, Dr. Gabitzinze, um, who will speak to us about the situation in Rwanda. Let me point out that he has been in his position since March of 2020. Prior to that, he was a member of the parliament and very importantly, I think also for this seminar, prior to that, he was a professor at the University of Rwanda. So he is certainly well-versed in uh, academic, academia and the importance of research. Over to you, uh, Minister. Uh, thank you so much. First of all, I want to thank uh, IFPRI for the invitation, but special thanks to uh, opening remarks from uh, Sweden, and we we, we thank uh, IFPRI even for the support they are giving us through the the office we have here. Thank you to Dr. David with the team. Uh, we are happy to, to 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 be here and to give you our history from last let's say two years because from much as we have said we have COVID. Can you please put in my presentation? Thank you so much. As I have said, 14 March 2020, the government of Rwanda issued the, the first measures against COVID. And from that day, the food prices have been increasing uh, every day uh, until to date. 
because of some reason you must know. First of all, because Rwanda is a landlocked uh, country, the transportation costs became huge. And then the business in terms of volumes and value reduced because borders were closed. Uh, as we even trade in neighboring countries like uh, Congo, we, we saw reduction on volumes and values or on trading store because the, the border was closed for many months. So coming back to the presentation today, if you can go to the next one. Yeah, from the global commodity prices, if we take from the 2020 situation to February 2022, we can even add some days of March. We have had serious issues on edible oils. Edible oils because we import mainly 86% of our consumption uh, is imported mainly from uh, Ukraine and other countries. And today, after the war or the invasion of Russia, 33% of prices of edible oils increased just in two, three weeks. The same, we have uh, issues on soybean. Soybean is, uh, as a commodity is very important for us because it is used to, to produce animal feeds, mainly for poultry, uh, as the production at local level is not uh, too much to cover the imports. We're still importing huge quantities uh, and fertilizers. Fertilizers is, is a particular, uh, because we don't produce fertilizers in Rwanda, we import 100% of what we use in the agriculture sector. And here we have a big concern because we thought fertilizers will not be able to increase productivity and to deal with substitution in terms of uh, or importation visas, exportation. The gas oil, mainly oil for transportation and energy is affecting uh, the food prices uh, because as I have said, as a, a country where we don't have a near uh, or a near transportation means in terms of reducing cost of transaction, we, we spend a lot of money for transportation from COVID until to now. And then the, the prices locally uh, were not somehow high, but recently they, 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 there is an increase over 40% to, to all, all types of oil we are, we, are, we are using. And this is a, a big concern for our country, if I can just take some minutes here, fertilizer and the gas oil, because as you know, Rwanda is a small country, we, we use input and improved seed to boost our productivity and to be able to, to reach the targets we have in our transformation program from 2018 to 2024. Recently, we, we, we don't have in terms of capacity of purchasing from our farmers because the, the prices have been increasing. But as you will see, the government put some subsidy. I will talk later on that. The same on gas and, and, and oil. Uh, next. So inflation globally is, is becoming an issue, but locally in Rwanda is the same. Lastly, with the consumer price index we have had uh, last month, uh, we saw an increase from 3.2 to 4.2, then 4.2 to 5.6 as the global inflation. But if you go back on foods, as you can see, for example, on rice, soybean, wheat, wheat flour, rice, Asia, those are commodities 
we are net importers. So may, even if you produce at local level, but the quantity is not enough, you can even add maize, meaning that the importation, because of the shocks I talked about, the importation prices are increasing. The cost of importation is increasing and are increasing the, the, the local, the domestic prices. But there's another factor uh, of this inflation is speculation. From the first day, 24 February, when Russia in, did the invasion to, to, to Ukraine, we have had serious issues among our traders because of speculation. They, they increased immediately one week after the the price of rice, even the, even domestic produced, the price of soybean, wheat, wheat it has been increased over forty percent because wheat even if it, if it is not a commodity where all Rwandans are consuming every day, it's not a key commodity in terms of of consumption, even in terms of business around, because we, we, we have an export of 27 million every year, and we, we import 70% of the grain used to, to produce flour or of wheat are coming from Russia. Then we export it to, to, to RDC, uh, Republic of the Democratic Congo. So I can say here, we are not concerned mainly of wheat, but we are concerned with other commodities like, like, like maize, like rice, like soybean, because those are key commodities consumed every day. And as I have said, because of the speculation, we have a slight increase on prices. But the trend we see, if you see, we have had high, high prices during 2020 when we, we began with COVID. But now, if you see the situation between December and now, it, it, it seems it's going to increase quickly if, if the war is not going to stop very soon, and uh, we don't we don't think it will be uh, tomorrow after tomorrow. So we still have uh, those problems connected to connected to, to the inflation. But as you will see, we have some strategies we are we have been putting in, in place during the two the two years I have talked about, and we hope to to continue to support our farmers even in terms of purchasing power because the prices are increased, but the, the capacity of buying uh, is reduced. In terms of income, income generation. The next one. So, as I have said, let's take time to, to talk about fertilizer. In our fourth strategy plan for agriculture transformation, as I have said, 2018 2024, we wanted to increase the use of fertilizer because it's a factor, it's a factor of production where if you, we, we increase the volumes used, we, we, we see the increase in terms of productivity of our main. Uh, key commodities, I can repeat again, is maize, beans, cassava, we have soybean, we have even wheat. So now we have, as I have said, we have a decrease in terms of use because of the, the cost of fertilizer from the last two years. But good enough, the government put in place a moderate subsidy, as we see under strategies. And at least you can say our farmers have been producing uh, during the COVID and this time of the, the war in Ukraine, there's no big variation in terms of production. Then the, the, the cost of maintaining the progress to date is increasing dramatically, and we will see, you know, to be possible that the government continue to put money to subside if the, if, if the price continue to increase. So we, we can ask ourselves if we, our progress to date be reversed by international events. Uh, if you go to the next uh, 
we can find the, sol the, the solutions we are, we, are, we are proposing and, and, and how we can see which options we can apply uh, to, 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 to be able to deal with those external shocks. So first of all, the in short term solutions, we have to make sure that it, it, has, it has been, been said, restriction on trade you have to avoid in terms of the regional trade because we trade mainly at regional level in East African community, in Africa in general. And as you know, the intra-trade in Africa is very weak. It's around 90% of the total trade we have. So meaning that you have to see how we can find new opportunities or, or open new windows to, to continue to trade and to be competitive. The second one, as I've said, is continue to provide subsidies. Okay, subsidies is a short-term solution because as you know, we can't, you, you can't continue to subsidy until when if the cost of commodities keep increasing is it is it to our our government but we hope we'll be able to continue to 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 to, to cover a certain level to make sure that at least at in, at the domestic level we, we keep producing the key commodities we need then we are trying to see how can we be able to 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 to, to have food substitution Okay, now wheat is that is used mainly to produce bread and other products. So we have sweet potatoes here and the cassava, and they can have a good flour to, to use as, a, as, a, as substitutions. We are trying this. We don't know how the market will respond. We, we have a small part of uh, Aba and Kigari who are, who are eating bread from sweet potatoes and the cassava, but you don't know how the, the, the answer will be, but you want to make sure that we increase the production of sweet potatoes and the cassava, then you can make a substitution because importation will only add on uh, problems we have today in terms of uh, purchasing power. Then you have had even during COVID, a social protection system. First of all, economically, we have economic recovery fund. Uh, we, we give to small traders or business, even big, to make sure that they recover quickly. But there is a, another social aspect where we have been distributing food when was needed through our strategic reserve we have in our ministry. So we make sure that there is a full with grains, beans, maize, flour. So we, we are ready. If needed, we continue to do it as we have done it during COVID. Then we have to see how we can open up or open us to find source of supply here i want to mean that we want to make sure that if we we can't afford today we are buying fertilizers mainly from Russia. then we see it's not possible we are trying to contact uh morocco because we think they can be a good substitute then we we see saudi arabia to make sure we are we are we are, we are doing the, the the good deal of course international prices will be increased globally but make sure that you want to make sure that we, we, we find where you can buy at less cost and the transportation will be easy for, for, for us. Then strategically, you have to make sure that even if we intervene, now we are intervening to the market to make sure that we, we correct irregularities we can find, like speculation. But we can't force the market. We want the market to work itself. We want to, to see business continue. So as government, you make sure that you facilitate, but you don't want to impose what can happen to the market medium to long term solutions of course as a country where i have said you have a limited land you have to find a way to boost productivity to boost productivity today is through using improved seeds 
is through using technology. So we want to make sure that we increase production. And as I've said, we open markets. Then you have to make sure that we are prepared with future shocks through data, through having policy in terms to respond quickly, dynamic policies. Then you make sure that our trade integration, as I have said, is more open than it has been in the last years. So uh, I thank you so much. And the, uh, is a chance again to be here as Rwanda to present. Uh, thank you again. And uh, we will continue to enjoy our collaboration with IFPRI. And again, we thank the office you gave us here in Rwanda because we're working seriously on economic modeling to inform our policymakers. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Minister. Um, you put on one of your slides, there's a need to take some tough strategic decisions. And boy, have you outlined that extremely well. If if fertilizer subsidies are already accounting for 12% of your, of your budget, and then you think about all the other needs that you have, that is indeed a, a challenging situation. Um, so thank you very much for, for outlining that for us. Uh, we will soon be moving to our, our Q&A session after the next uh, set of speakers. So let me remind you again, please do submit your brief questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. We're now moving to a set of rapid fire presentations. These are, these are rather short presentations to give you, again, a sense of what is happening in particular countries or regions. And I'm delighted to kick us off with Yemen. We've already heard uh, some about the very challenging situation in Yemen. And now it's my pleasure to turn over to Sikandar Kurdi, who's a research fellow at IFPRI, to give us a little bit more of a deeper uh, look at, at the challenges facing Yemen. Of course, longstanding challenges, but now greatly exacerbated by the invasion of Ukraine. Thank you very much, Charlotte, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, discuss a little bit today about um, the situation for food security in Yemen um, as a result of the current sharp increase in wheat prices. Um, my work uh, remarks today will draw on work authored jointly with Clemens Breisinger, Joseph Glauber, and David Laborde. So um, an important piece of the background for Yemen um, can go to the next slide. Um, as Rob highlighted earlier today, is that the country relies extremely heavily on wheat imports for feeding its population. Yemen historically was self-sufficient in agriculture and has a very kind of developed traditional system of terraces and spate irrigation. Um, but uh, since the 1970s, local grain production has fallen as population has increased and the country has become increasingly reliant on remittances and over-exploitation of groundwater resources and uh, dependent for food supplies on, on imports of wheat and grains in general. With the civil war, which started in 2015, um, it's been very destructive for the Yemeni economy. Um, you can see that total exports fell dramatically um, while imports rose. Um, today, food imports alone exceed total exports from Yemen. Um, and Yemen's basically dependent still on remittances and international aid. Um, so this creates a very significant vulnerability to rising prices on world markets, um, especially vulnerable to um, the supply shock from Russia and Ukraine. 46% of calories um, in Yemen 
uh, food supply are from wheat. Um, it's very much the uh, central staple uh, food item in people's diets. Um, and you can see in the, the figure here, a substantial share of that is coming directly from uh, Ukraine and Russia in the orange. Um, and then additionally from other uh, MENA countries, um, which are in turn kind of re-exporting uh, from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, additionally, in terms of the vulnerability to the fuel price shock, um, Yemen produces a modest amount of crude oil, um, but it relies on imports of diesel and gasoline because it doesn't have its own refinery. Um, and the, uh, there's been a lot of government intervention in the fuel market. Uh, it's, as a result, uh, prices are high um, and um, from the side of uh, consumers, if they want to access uh, fuel, it's basically impossible. There's very dramatic shortages, people in uh, very long lines uh, to get any form of fuel. Uh, next slide, please. On the side of uh, food and wheat, um, food markets generally are fairly free and functional. Um, unlike fuel, there's not a lot of direct government intervention. Uh, that also means that the global wheat prices are transferred pretty directly to the local retail markets. So the challenge for Yemeni households is uh, definitely affordability. The bulk of calories for poor households comes from staple grains, um, about 71%. Um, uh, and for poor households, they're spending like 25% of their budget on wheat alone. Notably also, as um, people's budgets become more constrained, what we've seen historically over the course of the conflict is that the response of Yemeni households is to cut out more high priced food items and rely even more heavily on the cheapest calorie sources, particularly imported wheat. Um, so even with the increase in prices, there's still very strong demand. Um, and the alternative of ramping up local production is unlikely to make much difference in the short term. First of all, you have the high fuel prices that make um, kind of the irrigation um, prohibitively expensive um, because they're not able to power the, the diesel pumps um, and also for transportation. And then you just have also the history since the, the 1970s where the infrastructure um, in the agriculture there is not at all oriented towards cereal production. Food security since the civil war is extremely high. All areas of the country are classified as crisis or emergency um, with the potential for famine to emerge if current trends continue. Um, next slide, please. This kind of slides into um, my next uh, uh, topic here, which is that um, the really significant role of a humanitarian response in terms of the um, wheat supply in Yemen. So more than half of Yemeni households receive some form of food aid. Um, and it actually accounts for 12% of cereal imports to Yemen, um, humanitarian aid primarily from the World Food Program um, and also others. And the World Food Program alone is reaching about 43% of Yemeni's population. So there's two challenges for the humanitarian response with the current war. First, the food aid distributed in Yemen often includes processed products that are sourced from other MENA countries, in turn um, from wheat from Ukraine and Russia. Um, so you can see this in, in the diagram here. Um, 
And then uh, there's also uh, uncertainty about sufficient international funding for maintaining the current level of support that the Yemeni people are relying on to avoid famine. At the recent high level pledging event uh, this month, donors committed approximately 30% less uh, than in 2021, um, in spite of the increased uh, prices, which are going to increase the cost of providing the same amount of uh, food aid. Uh, so looking to the, the future, one um, potential response is to continue the trend towards a greater use of cash rather than in-kind transfers. Um, in cash uh, in general, and especially in Yemen, um, we've seen is more cost efficient than in-kind food distribution and allow households to increase the consumption of non-staple food items as well. Uh, one of the challenges for that approach would be maintaining the value of cash transfers um, in the face of high inflation, not only as a result of um, the wheat global uh, wheat prices, um, but also um, because of devaluation of the currency um, in the areas controlled by the internationally recognized government in the South. Uh, and then in the longer term, uh, this is the importance of the humanitarian development nexus approach is that it's not sufficient just to focus um, on the short term, which in Yemen has already been uh, almost seven years of a what's in theory a short term crisis where you're providing uh, food aid directly to people, but also um, to long term development goals such as uh, supporting local agricultural production, um, recovering uh, that tradition in Yemen, uh, especially uh, this is where, um, as Ali had discussed in his presentation, agricultural research from uh, one CGR system other other partners can be helpful to promote practices uh, that are more resilient um, to the conflict situation and to potential shocks in uh, global prices and uh, fuel supply in particular. So thinking about practices such as drip irrigation, the renovation of the traditional terrace uh, systems, and the use of solar uh, power. But then finally, ultimately, um, the only way to for Yemen to, to recover, um, to be really on a safe path again, is to have a political situation to the conflict. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sikandra, also for highlighting the humanitarian uh, aid angle, because of course we have a huge refugee crisis now in Europe, but there are many other humanitarian needs around the world. So we're running a little bit out of time. So I would like to ask the, the next three presenters if they could to keep their remarks very short. I know it's a big challenge, but I, we have questions coming in and I definitely want to give some time to Q&A. So our next speaker is Valeria Pinero, who's a research coordinator at IFPRI, and she has the, <laughs> the big job of talking about the entire region of uh, Latin America and Caribbean in just a few minutes. Over to you, Valeria. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Uh, and yes, indeed, uh, my presentation will be a little bit different just because I will try to, to cover the uh, whole region. And as we all know, um, next slide, please, Katarla. As, as we all know, um, the region is very heterogeneous. So the impact uh, of this conflict will really depend on how each country dealt with COVID-19 in terms of lockdowns, stimulus packages, and so forth but also its recovery. And also if they are net food importer versus food um, net food exporters, as well as energy sources, all these will have a different impact. So for example, looking at this slide, um, 
Argentina and Brazil, which have a large food trade surplus, will experience different impacts than the Caribbean, El Salvador, and Panama, which all have uh, food trade deficits. The figure on the right shows a clustering of countries by major export commodity basket. We can also see that the Mercosur countries, that they are all the uh, uh, dark purple, uh, are major exporters of soy, uh, cereals, and animal protein. Um, the same commodities, actually, that they are exported by Russia and Ukraine while Chile, Ecuador, and Peru primarily export fruits and fishery exports. It is also relevant that uh, Russia only accounts for 1.5% of total exports from the region. The exports of uh, soybeans, bananas, um, frozen beef, and fish um, by Ecuador, Colombia, and Paraguay are the ones, um, um, and Nicaragua imports wheat from uh, Russia. So Latin America and the Caribbean will not be directly affected by the agri-food trade restrictions that arrive with this conflict, but it will be affected by the same channels already mentioned by the other panelists. Um, I just wanted to highlight one thing about fertilizers. Um, Brazil imports 85% of uh, its potassium potassium based fertilizers from uh, the region, and Peru, Ecuador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, and Suriname, given their high dependence on nitrogen fertilizer imports from Russia and Belarus. Next slide. Uh, this figure zooms into the one uh, Rob uh, showed earlier based on the vulnerability index done by David Laborde that shows how vulnerable each country is at the time of facing uh, this crisis. So the green color, which is Brazil, represents a moderate impact, no immediate risk, but fertilizer supply is seriously compromised, as I mentioned earlier. Um, in yellow, high vulnerability due to food consumption, exposed to conflicts by Nicaragua and Venezuela. Their situation, of course, is no new, but it can be exacerbated. Uh, the blue that only represents Panama is a high risk of food price increase due to the last month's uh, changes. And then in light blue or turquoise um, is high vulnerability due to large increase in the food cost compared to uh, GDP is expected, and that represents uh, almost all the rest of Latin America. Uh, next slide, please. This slide showed um, just three of the indicators that are part of the vulnerability index uh, showed in the previous slide. Others included the amount of calories consumed by each country that comes from Russia and or Ukraine, or the amount of calories that will be affected by export restrictions. Either of them were relevant for Latin America and the Caribbean for the reasons that I already mentioned. However, food inflation, that's the figure on the uh, left, highlights high inflation in Venezuela and Argentina, both of them, come from even previous to the conflict, and they are related with Macron political reasons. But Argentina using export restrictions are very inefficient ways to curb inflation. And then the figures in the middle shows the 12-month variation of the current account as percentage of GDP for all goods. And the one on the right, it's only for food. A lighter color means an improvement in the current account. And I just want to highlight the increasing imports uh, on all goods in Panama and the benefit of Mercosur countries were related to food. All these will relate to import capacity for these countries. We will have a blog this week that will analyze these vulnerabilities and the conflict in Latin America. And the next slide. So I just want to um, highlight um, some of the things that I think that are important for Latin America, uh, just not be very repetitive. So I would just like to say that in the short term, um, for Latin America, 
we do have to resolve the problem of fertilizer. Otherwise, the food supply will be impacted for next year. And that will be related also with land expansion, so that we will have to, to be very careful how we play that one. Then Argentina's export restrictions and price control policies, again, not new, but they are increasing in complexity and impact. And then the financial flows and interest rates that impact uh, the already troubled fiscal deficits in the region and their capacity to have the safety nets, the proper safety nets to deal with these increases in, uh, in the food prices uh, in countries. Then in the longer term, there are two things I would like to highlight. The first one is that this may open up export opportunities, mainly for countries that export milling products, uh, grains, fats and oils, and oil seeds. This is especially uh, interesting for the case of Mercosur countries, but also, for example, Colombia as a palm oil producer. And the second one is the diversification of suppliers and demand side becomes even more relevant. For example, Mercosur countries should think of strategies for not relying on the Chinese market for their exports of soybeans. We will still have some uncertainties, so we still have to see what China will do by less amount of wheat related with uh, stocks, buy from uh, Russia discounted prices that could create an opportunity for other countries to access production from Canada. That currently is China's uh, supplier. Then the, the second one is the Spanish government announced a temporary relaxation of the phytosanitary rules to import corn for animal feed from Argentina and Brazil. Uh, this could create a risk uh, in this situation, makes a kind of uh, bypass uh, to the European Union Mercosur agreement and the irreversibility of the environmental damages that this could create. For example, in Brazil, there are some um, federal legislators are trying to push to open protected indigenous lands for the mining of potash. And then the third one is the impact on energy transition. Will we be impacted? How much? What's going to be that rate? Um, and what about biofuels? So um, uh, Charles already mentioned some of that, and I won't go into this for short of time, but that is something else that we need to, to look into. So just to conclude, the current crisis has highlighted the importance of diversification in dealing with increased level of risk seen in the current world. The US-China trade tensions, the COVID-19, increasing natural disasters and conflict creates problems in logistics and others uh, impacted the accessibility and affordability of inputs and food products, which is translated in more volatility in the markets and the implementation of domestic policies that reinforces higher world prices. In particular, governments have to keep working on interventions that take care of the most vulnerable, like the safety nets. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Valeria. Great overview of what's happening in the region as a result of the developments in Ukraine. Uh, next up is Myanmar, and we're very delighted to have with us Bart Minton, a senior research fellow um, also at IFPRI and the leader of the Myanmar Strategy Support uh, Program at IFPRI. Um, Bart, thank you for walking us through, again, the very uh, delicate situation that Myanmar is facing. Yeah, thank you, Charlotte. I'll give uh, a little bit of an overview of what's happening in uh, Myanmar. Uh, next slide, please. Yeah, so uh, Myanmar is one of the, the poorest countries in Southeast Asia. It has been really hard hit in, over the last year by two crises. First, the uh, COVID-19 crisis, like a lot of countries. But in the case of Myanmar, uh, because of the closure of borders by China, this was, uh, this was a big hit for them. Uh, 
the second one is political turmoil over the last year and creating all kinds of insecurity issues in, in the country and was a big hit to the economy. And it has been estimated by, by the World Bank, for example, that the, the Myanmar's economy contracted by almost 20% uh, last year. There are about 14 million people in humanitarian need out of uh, 55 million currently. And so let's then look what, what's happening now with the food system uh, linked, well, in, in recent months. Uh, first, we have to highlight the role of rice is the main staple in the country, uh, represent about 60% of the calories of the people and about half of the cropland in the monsoon season. The most important agricultural season is, is allocated to rice. It's in a normal situation is also a rice exporting country. Next slide. So what do we see happening with these uh, rice prices in the, in the country? Internationally, as, as you indicated already, we have uh, not uh, too many problems with the stocks of rice. And so compared to a year ago, the price of rice internationally is actually down. So if you look at the, the price of Thai rice, it was 90% lower in February than last year, but it has been increasing in, in more uh, recent months. Now, international prices are down. That doesn't mean that local prices are down. So if you look uh, at the graph on the right side, you see that what's happening with retail prices in Myanmar and with farm gate prices. Retail prices are in green, farm gate prices are in red. Retail prices at the national level, they have been increasing over the last year uh, by 15%. Um, we see especially big increases in those areas that are affected by conflict, uh, uh, conflict about 20% uh, increases there. Now, if you look at the red bar, the increases for the farm gate prices, we see that these price rises are much smaller. They are about 5%. Uh, and so indicating that these differences between uh, the, the retail markets and the farm gate prices are uh, becoming bigger, driven by insecurity, driven by increased transportation costs, and driven by banking systems and banking problems in the country. Next slide. Then just one slide on what's happening with fertilizer. Very big deal in, in Myanmar is the biggest commercial input for farms in, in the country. Two years ago, they were importing for about 400 million uh, US dollars. The prices for fertilizer in nominal terms is now about 3 .3 times higher than two years ago. But these uh, Prices have been going up in a big way, but the farm prices have not changed. So that will lead to less use of uh, fertilizer uh, in the agricultural sector. And so we will see a contraction of the rice and the agricultural sector. And so we have done some simulations to try to see what the impact would be. And so if you would have a reduction of fertilizer use in the agricultural sector by uh, to have the level that would lead to reduction of output by uh, between nine and 12%. So the really dire situation in Myanmar, it's uh, uh, consumers are faced with higher retail prices and farmers are being squeezed with uh, 
farm gate prices that do not change and then input prices that are going up in a big way. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bart, for highlighting all of the issues facing Myanmar. Our last uh, presentation is on Ethiopia, again, a rather challenging situation in that country. And we're very happy to have with us uh, Zerem Gachave Kilbora, who's an economist at the World Bank. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Zerem. Thank you very much for, for having me and then giving me the opportunity to, to speak on this event. So I, I, will, I will be very quick on uh, with the best interest of time as well. Uh, <clears throat> and already, as, as, as my, the previous speakers has indicated, the global prices are increasing. And, and this has been happening since the pandemic. And the recent prices, price increases are building on, on the impacts of the pandemic. And, uh, and in particular for Ethiopia as a net importer of food, mainly wheat and uh, cooking oil, fuel, fertilizers, and, uh, and the increasing commodity price means that uh, uh, then uh, there will have impacts on, on direct and indirect impacts on food security uh, in, in Ethiopia. So in addition to adding to the already uh, dire inflationary, inflationary pressure, the recent rise in, in global commodity prices might impact uh, the agricultural production and productivity as fertilizer prices have, uh, have soared. And, and we are hearing that uh, fertilizer prices have already uh, doubled. Uh, prior to the current crisis, uh, domestic prices have been rising due to uh, local factors, uh, including the pandemic and also uh, a recent conflict which is happening in, in the northern part of uh, Ethiopia. And that has disrupted agricultural production and, and uh, uh, trade and uh, value chains. Inflation is mainly uh, uh, driven by food inflation, basically uh, bread and cereals cooking oil contributing about 60% on to uh, the food inflation. And for the last six months, uh, uh, inflation has been running above uh, 30%. And then uh, the Ukraine-Russia <coughs> crisis is adding further to uh, the inflationary pressure. Next slide. And when we see the local prices, uh, cereal prices are on the rise. And wheat and maize prices have been increasing uh, over the last, uh, over the recent months. And, and this is happening during uh, the harvest season as well. As the lean season is approaching, and then uh, given uh, uh, the Ukraine Russia crisis, uh, then prices will continue to uh, trend up in the coming months as well. And Ethiopia is. Uh, importing wheat from from uh, that region, from Ukraine or Russia. Uh, and the increase in prices means that the wheat import bill will increase, which, which will have an impact on uh, the balance of payment of the, the country as well. So quickly going to the outlook. So the increase in fertilizer price may have an increase in productivity, may impact the agricultural production as um, farmers may not be you know, applying uh, fertilizer as they used to in previous years or in previous seasons. 
and rising wheat prices may increase food insecurity in urban areas. And government has been importing wheat uh, to subsidize urban bread prices. And given the increase in prices, the import the import bill obviously will increase, and then uh, uh, the volume of import may probably uh, decrease. And significant risk of reversing development may, might be uh, happening, uh, and more and more people people may be uh, falling back to poverty again, and uh, poverty reduction uh, gains might be uh, reversing. So, in the short term, uh, what could be done is that uh, increasing the coverage of social protection uh, to safeguard uh, the welfare of the urban poor and, and, and both the rural poor. And Ethiopia has a, a well-functioning social protection program in both in urban and rural areas, and then strengthening that and uh, uh, increasing the coverage of the social protection provided the fiscal space allows and then provided also the uh, donor support is uh, available uh, that would safeguard the welfare of the, the urban and rural poor or the vulnerable section of the society uh, during this uh, increasing prices in and in the long run, enhancing productivity to reduce exposure to international commodity price and uh, volatility might be uh, important. And, and increasing productivity or domestic productivity would be important to safeguard uh, or to be, to be resilient for both uh, the shocks from the international commodity price markets and also from the shocks uh, due to the uh, climate change, which is also impacting uh, agricultural production in, in developing countries, including uh, Ethiopia. Thank you so much. That's all from my side. Over to you. Thank you very much, Sarion. Um, very good presentation. So let's move straight into the Q&A session. Understandably, we've had a number of questions asking in the short term, what are the opportunities for other producers to step in for uh, providing the, the exports that Ukraine and Russia are no longer or may no longer be able to provide? So a question from Louis Sarant, are other countries in Europe or on the American continent uh, able to produce sufficient quantities of wheat to plug the import gap for countries like Egypt, Lebanon and others? What another a questioner asks a similar question, scope for alternative sources to make up for Ukraine, Russia supplies. So I'd like to turn to Rob on that question. And also maybe we can have uh, Valeria jump in because Mercosur of course is such an important um, provider of, of staples. And then if, um, if Ali maybe would like to speak to that question as well, but more from the perspective of, of how can we ramp up more local production of food to make up for that shortfall or simply to combat the, the high prices that we're facing. And then lastly, if um, Bart would like to come in, China is a special case here as well for two reasons. China, we understand, has pretty sizable food reserves, strategic reserves. Is there any opportunity maybe for China to provide some support to countries like Myanmar? 
And secondly, China is also a very important producer of fertilizers, but they have imposed export restrictions. What do you anticipate maybe on that front as well, Bart? So let's start with Rob and then move to uh, Valeria, Ali, and, and Bart. Yeah, <clears throat> no, thanks for that question. Um, it, in the short run, it's there are limited options. There are few, um, but particularly if we take the nature of the particularly wheat production in Ukraine and Russia. It's, it's winter wheat, so it's planted in the fall and harvested in the summer. Um, so uh, there's little to, to replace that exactly. So it could be replaced with uh, some more production that might might happen of countries that have space to um, produce what are called soft wheat, which is sort of summer wheat, which um, is uh, particularly planted in, in the spring and then harvested later this year. Now that said, so that that won't be an immediate res response to potential shortages that may emerge now. So the real response, if we want to have uh, yeah, mitigation effects in the short run, it will have to come from uh, reserves. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, some countries are really trying. I mentioned the case of uh, of India, which is uh, is beefing up its exports of wheat. It's not. A major producer, but big enough, and it's just big enough reserves to to do something. But that will only be a partial uh, solution to it. Um, you mentioned yourself, um, China has huge reserves, but uh, that uh, they're holding that also for their own sake. The, the good needs is quite a bit of international persuasion for China to to step in and use those those reserves. So um, we still have a bit of uh, of time to buy. So to, probably total amount of reserves around the world, excluding China, is about 60 days. Um, so that really depends on how things are play, playing out in the coming uh, weeks or months, whether we really will see um, that uh, exports from the Baltic Sea region will, will, will come to a complete halt, as well as that harvest may be lost. And then, um, uh, yeah, these short-term the measures uh, may mitigate a little bit, but won't be enough to um, to avoid a much deeper rise in, in, in prices. So overall, the, the scope for replacement is not that easy. Of course, substitution is possible, but that will require quite a bit of bigger adjustment along supply chains, whether people are willing to buy uh, bread from cassava or, or other um, uh, substitutes. That, that will be then a question, but that all that will take some adjustment time. So. The immediate short-term problems won't be resolved uh, that way. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Valeria, if you want to add um, anything. I would just add um, two more things to what Rob said. Um, um, indeed, if you're talking about South America, so as you said, uh, Argentina and the Mercosur countries, but more than anything, Argentina with respect of wheat. Uh, what it is done from this uh, campaign is it's, it's done. So in the short term, there is not much to do. Uh, in terms of exports already, uh, they are compromised um, uh, most of it as well. So what we need to think about is what next. Uh, so for the next uh, campaign, what's going to, to happen in these countries. And so Argentina, it's a very interesting case because they also have a lot of uh, domestic policies that uh, affect the agricultural sector. And these um, um, also policies um, kind of, in my, in my perspective, they don't really act all together to really motivate um, and give 
incentives and the right signals at the proper timing to do. So it will really be key of what the government does in the next coming uh, months. And depending on how the conflict evolve, they will also take their own measures at home. So I think that that will, that will be a, a very key issue. Um, the other thing is, of course, that uh, the fertilizer and that for me plays a bigger imp uh, impact in Brazil because Brazil uses more fertilizer than Argentina and the US for producing more than anything soy, uh, but the other as well. Um, and they also import 95% of their fertilizers. So that will be key for this season, but also for, 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 the, for the future one. And then the third thing is, is China. And I would just say one thing, even though I know you asked to the next panel is, but I think that I said it in my, in my presentation, China will be Whatever China does in the upcoming uh, weeks and months will be very important. And there are two things important. The first one is, yes, they do have stocks. We're not very sure exactly what's the quantity, but more than anything, the quality of the uh, stocks that they already have. They're also predicting that this harvest is not going to be a very good one for China. So those are two, two things that won't play in our favor kind of thing. But then the third one is what they are going to do in terms of buying wheat from Russia. They already said that they will buy some from Russia. So how much will they buy from Russia? And that will leave some open um, space or extra production more than anything from Canada, that that's where uh, they import more of which uh, from, that maybe Canadians can sell to other countries. Thank you. Thanks, That's those are great points. Um, Ali, you, you've highlighted some of the innovations that we need to put into place in order to increase domestic production in countries and many of them being put forward by the CGIR. Do you see any of that sort of playing a role in the short run or are we talking more medium to, to longer, longer term results that we expect there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, it's more about the medium to long term. The immediate one will be around options for uh, mixing alternative crops to uh, wheat to be able to make bread, like in the case of barley. But even barley is uh, largely affected because, you know, Ukraine and Russia also are major uh, producers of barley, although most of it goes to uh, brewing. But uh, let me just highlight one other issue for the Middle East and North Africa, because you have, uh, you know, it's not just the issue of supply, it's the issue of ability to buy. And I think under the rising food prices, these countries, at least eight out of the 16, suffer from very significant economic challenges that makes even the availability of foreign currency to purchase, even if the supply was available, is a major challenge. So with the doubling of the prices, it's even much more complex. So it is only natural to look for, as much as possible, local solutions to the extent possible to complement the needs of uh, the people in the region. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. Bart, do you want to come in briefly on, on Myanmar and, and possibility of working more exports coming from, from China? Yeah, just maybe something I could add. I, I don't see China stepping in in a big way uh, to help other countries. Maybe some selected countries that they are really very friendly with, they might uh, help, but uh, I don't see them stepping in in, in Myanmar. One thing that I haven't heard mentioning is the issue with, with COVID in China, right? So they still are blocking a lot of their borders. So it's very hard to export anything into China or things coming from China into Myanmar, for example. This border has been closed for the last six months, nine months. And so 
they open it for a week and then they close it again for a long period. So how they are going to deal with COVID will uh, determine a lot of these uh, things in these agricultural markets in these neighboring countries. Thanks. Thanks, Bart. And of course, that's a point, I think, across the world, right? We're, we're in this new crisis, but the old crisis is still with us. COVID is not yet in the rearview mirror and, and supply chains are still backed up uh, because of some of the, the COVID-related issues that have happened over, over the past few years. So I'm, I'm really sorry that we, we have run out of time. We've got a lot of questions and obviously there's a, there's a lot of interest here. And, and I just can thank all of you speakers for really laying out, I think the complexity of the situation, the many different angles that we need to be looking at the situation, short-term, medium-term and long-term. And fertilizers has come up a number of times, so let me um, make a plug for the next seminar in this series, which will happen uh, May 4th. Um, uh, sorry, is it April or May 4th now? Anyway, we'll, we'll update you on that, but there will be a seminar uh, squarely focused on fertilizer prices coming up under this series, so please keep an eye out for that. Uh, thank you again to all the speakers, to the IFPRI event management team, and wishing all of you a wonderful rest of your day or evening, wherever you may be. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.